Welcome again. Um, I'm very lucky to have with me today three very different, very esteemed um, and very talented filmmakers, writers and composers. Actually, singular, I should, that should be. But um, most of them are um, cross-pollinate between lots of different art forms. I'd love to start by introducing Lisa Gerard. Now, Lisa was a part of um, a very popular music group called Dead Can Dance, and she released over nine albums with her group between 1984 and 1995 before going solo. Um, but one thing that she did with, um, with the band that brought her, I guess, towards this panel today is um, they contributed to the soundtrack of an incredible film called Baraka. And since then, uh, Lisa has scored and contributed to some of the most impressive films, um, Gladiator, Ali, Balibo, Insider, The Insider, Heat, Black Hawk Down, and the wonderful New Zealand film Whale Rider, for which she got many awards and nominations. Um, she's collaborated with some incredible musicians and composers, such as Hans Zimmer and Ennio Morricone, and she's even acted in one of the films that she has composed for. And she's also a singer, an instrumentalist, and um, I'm very, very pleased that she was able to be with us today. She also composed the soundtrack to the opening night film last night, Oranges and Sunshine. So welcome, Lisa. I have to the left of me immediately Mr. Bob Connolly. Now, Bob has a long history with Auntie, um, which is I've, I've found out recently is what the ABC is known as. Um, he made over 30, or was involved with 30 documentaries in the 70s alone. Um, every single one of Bob's films, which are all documentaries, have been released in the cinema, which I think is an amazing achievement for any filmmaker, let alone a documentarian. Um, now, he and his partner, Robin Anderson, worked together. She was his research assistant, and they went on, they joined forces to create an amazingly acclaimed Highlands trilogy of films. Um, they were um, First Contact, Joe Lee's Neighbours, and Black Harvest, and they were in and out of the Papua New Guinea and high, uh, Highlands for over 10 years. And their films won 30 national and international awards, including an Oscar nomination and uh, the Grand Prix at Cannes. And now, very sadly, Robin died um, very young at the age of 51 in 2002. Um, and Bob is here today, 11 years later. Well, actually, that's only nine years later, I've just realised. But it's um, nine years later that he's here with his partner, new partner, Sophie Connolly, and they have the most incredible film, Mrs. Carey's Concert, that is premiering this afternoon at one o'clock for our student galas. So we're very, very proud to have Bob here with his new film and with us here today. Thank you, Jamie. Of course, I, we also have with us today, Mr. David Williamson, who we're very honoured to have at the festival alongside um, everyone else on this panel. Um, and for those of you that were there last night, um, we had a performance of one of his films by the Dungog High School, which I think was a, a very um, original performance of a film that we're actually showing today called The Club. We had some high school girls playing some ferocious, back-biting, backroom um, football league um, boardroom members, presidents, and they took to each other, I think, with a plum on stage, didn't you think, last night, David? Frightening. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, quite simply, we have here um, a national treasure who is one of the most acclaimed playwrights and um, screenwriters that this country has ever produced. Um, I am, uh, he, he's known as the 
Well, it's really a bedrock of satire that he deals with in his, in his plays and, and films, as well as much more serious topics such as Gallipoli, which we're screening on Saturday night. But um, he's known as, as a man who speaks to the people. And um, I, I love the fact that he's been described by Kate Blanchett. And I, I could go into his incredible long list of credits, but I think that might take up the whole panel. Um, so, David, if you don't mind, I might just start by kicking off with a question, which is, Kate Blanchett, I read, described that you took the Australian stage by the scruff of the neck in the 70s. How does it feel to take a whole art form by the scruff of the neck? <laughs> yeah, it was an incredibly exciting time to be around because um, it's hard for, for younger people to realise how bereft of Australian material um, our stages, our screens, um, even our bookstores were um, in the 60s. There was an occasional Australian play like the summer of the 17th doll or one day of the year, but there are a few and far between, and um, there, were, there was no Australian film industry at all. Occasionally, a foreign production company would shoot something in Australia and put American actors playing Australian parts, but there was no discernible film industry, there was very little television, and there was a sense that we were not allowed to tell our own stories and the explanation for this was that Australian was such a dull, conformist, suburban uh, nation that we had no stories to tell. And that was really touted around uh, as the reason. So suddenly there was, a, there was an anger and a hunger to be, uh, for us to be able to tell our own stories. And this started for me in the small theatres of Carlton and then they, the plays gravitated to... Um, to the largest theatres, uh, film started up. Uh, one of my early plays was filmed by Tim Burstall as the lowest budget Australian film ever. I think it was made on $40,000. They had to shoot it in a tin shed with carton, egg cartons pasted around the walls to give it some kind of sound deadening. And the takes had to be interrupted when the cartons fell off the wall. Um, <laughs> But it made it, it, it connected with an audience, it made money, and um, it was, I think, the first Australian film to actually make money for, um, for yonks. And, and this is talk? Yeah, well, it, and the whole thing took off. So it was, for me, it was less scruff of the neck. It was really an exciting time to be there when we first heard Australian actors using their own accents on stage. Mm -hmm. Up to that time, they went away and practised the 43 varieties of English accent, uh, plus American, plus uh, a bit of uh, fake French, and um, and it it was just heady. Uh, our own actors were allowed to say our tell our own stories in their own accents, and today that might seem weird to a young generation, but it, believe me, it didn't exist then. I am. Um, I've fascinated to also know before we move on to one of our other panelists, David. You have a. You started off with an academic background and you studied engineering and you're heading towards psychology, career in psychology, I believe. What was it that drove you? Was it this anger that you just touched on? Was there an anger in you that drove you that fire in the belly to, to write? It was partly anger. I, I was always naturally wanting to tell stories. Uh, my field of interest wasn't engineering. I did it because I was good at mathematics and boys had to do science and Mechanical engineering had the least chemistry, which I hated, so I, I did a degree in that without any interest, then I went back and did psychology. 
uh, did an MA prelim and was appointed to the psych department at Swinburne, or the general studies, and I was about to uh, do postgraduate work. But the area I was vitally interested in was um, social psychology, the dynamics of group behavior, the, the jostling for power, status, recognition within groups, the way language was used to do it. So in a sense, my playwriting was exactly the same area of interest with, and always has been, uh, the, 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 social, the processes of social interaction. Um, so I became a social psychologist on stage rather than doing it academically, but I would have been happy either way. It, it, it's just an absorbing interest of mine. Mm. I'd love to turn to you, Lisa, for a moment, if you don't mind. Um, I've read that you, you've lived in London, Spain, Ireland, and are you now in the Snowy Mountains? Is that correct? I'm in the Bawbaw, at the foothills of the Bawbaw Mountains. And what brought you back to Australia? I mean, we were going through that wonderful list of films that you've worked on, and obviously we live in an international world where living in Australia doesn't mean you can't be working on films and um, projects all around the world, but what was it that brought you back to get involved with Australian stories like Oranges and Sunshine? I didn't come back to get involved in stories like Oranges and Sunshine because I wasn't looking that far ahead, to be honest. I was never sure whether I'd ever work in the Australian scene here because it's a process of sort of accidents that happen over the years because the work takes on a life of its own and you don't design where the work takes you. The work takes you where the design of the heart of the other creative soul wants that work to be led within their own interest. So the work, that's ne I've never calculated where, where I've gone and worked, and I don't really see the difference in terms of the abstract of creation. That, you know, it's not a geographic reference for me, to be honest. I came back to Australia because my people are here, mm. and um, my family, and once you start having children, I wanted them to be in the company of their family. Absolutely. And just to touch on the uh, film that I mentioned earlier, um, Baraka, for those who don't know this film, it's, it's one of those cult films that I think has influenced a lot of people in different ways. Would you mind just telling us a little bit about that film and how you got involved? Well, Baraka was um, a film that clearly someone had... Uh, it was a labour of love. It wasn't a, a, a group of gamblers that were trying to break into a box office situation to make large sums of money. Mm -hmm. it, was, um, it was creatively uh, impulsed upon wanting to wake up spiritual, if you like, I hate that word, but spiritual consciousness within humanity and to remind them that although we live in a very material age and that things are about um, self-perpetuation, that there is an abstract that uh, motivates us in our conscious, our inner consciousness, etc. And um, so they were dedicated to going around the world and showing sensitively the, the abstract spiritual consciousness of different cultures around the world to remind us of who we are as human beings. I'm doing the sequel to that at the moment, Samsara. Wow. Yeah, and I've just got back from, from working with them and I'm going back next week. But uh, this one is about impermanence. And the thing that's remarkable about these works and encouraging, because there's so much cynicism in cinema, you know, um, that 
it reminds us that I know it's risky and we do need investors, you know, to be able to pull things like this off, you know, and thankfully the person that's making it has quite a good backing. But um, it reminds us that we do have something to talk about, that that campfire of deeper interest hasn't dissolved and that there is a sense of, you know, that especially now in the age that we live in, that we do have a sense that things are just going to be here forever. We can take, we, we take things for granted. And these works are a wonderful way of us standing back from the big picture and treading gently and realising that there, these things can disappear, mm. that there is an impermanence about where we are. It's extremely fragile. Mm. So it actually allows us to grow in a depth that, um, unfortunately, within the state of play, the way things are in the world at the moment, we are being led away from, you know, from the terms of pure entertainment, which is wonderful. I have absolutely nothing against that. But mm. we can't um, allow ourselves to become completely robbed of deeper meaning. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Well, I'm very excited to see Samsara having loved Baraka and really, really recommend that if you haven't seen Baraka, do get it out. Or if you have seen it, do get it out again. It's an incredible film. Um, Bob, can I turn to you? Because we're talking here about travelling one's talents. Now, Papua New Guinea, I, I, I've heard you talk with passion about this country. And I am wondering, you spent a long time there and obviously touching on the 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 spiritual realm in a way, you know, you, you actually touched, you were some of the first contact, that's obviously the name of that first film that you made with Robin there. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey? We're talking about travelling one's talents. You went to, instead of going to America to make your fortune, you went to Papua New Guinea. Yeah, I went to America before then. Did you? Um, yeah, I did. I actually was one, I was a cadet journalist and I was, uh, I got this trip, trip around the world because my dad was an airline pilot. I, was, I think I was 21 or something. And um, I landed in New York and I had a six-week stint there. Um, and then I stayed, I think, for 15 months um, because the, 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 the local correspondent, Peter Barnett, his mother got sick and so he had to go home. And for, I think, just sheer laziness, they just left me there. So I suddenly found myself at 21, the ABC's North American correspondent. <laughs> well, and, that sounds really tough. I bet you had a hell of a time. No, it was tough because I always felt I was sort of drowning, you know, all the time. I sort of always felt I was... It way over my head. And, and apart from the fact that when I went to the United Nations Security Council, they wouldn't let me in because I thought I was too young. Really? Well, not, no, into the bar, that's right. They, oh. you, know, you had to be 21, and they said, where's your ID? Yeah. And I said, I am the ABC's North American correspondent. <laughs> anyway, I digress. They didn't believe you? I digress. <laughs> no, I had to show my ID. Um, Robbie and I, she was my, my co-director too, um, not, uh, rather than a research assistant, although she was brilliant at that. And she began that way, though, didn't Very she? interesting, actually, because I was hearing David talk about social psychology. Um, we met in uh, 78, and she had just come back from Columbia, where she'd done a postgraduate degree in, in uh, sociology. But what she was really interested in and what she did her thesis on was, was that, that whole thing of the phenomenology of the group and observation of the group. And so when we decided to, when I decided to leave the ABC, mainly because she said I'd been there too long and she'd leave me if I didn't, <laughs> um, we started making observational films, purely observational films. And her 
extraordinary expertise in that area. You know, just um, she had studied under people like Herbert Gans and Etzioni, who were world leaders in the field in Colombia. I think at one point they had 57 Nobel laureates at this place. Um, they, so she taught me, and I'd already been in journalism for 10 or, 10 or 12 years, and she taught me a huge amount about just how to observe, a, you know, observe a situation and not be fooled and to not sort of inject you know, prejudice and all that sort of stuff into it. So that was absolutely an, an amazing um, uh, you know, thing, thing to, uh, to start off our career in a way as, as joint observational filmmakers. We went to, to New Guinea in 1980, I think because um, uh, we'd been, I'd just left the ABC and, and I, a friend of mine, Tim Bowden, we went to his place for dinner and he said, I said, what, you know, what are you working on? He said, uh, uh, an oral history of Australia's involvement in New Guinea. And I started to question him about it, not knowing very much about New Guinea, except that we fought there. And I then realised it was the biggest thing this country ever did. We took a country of three million people from the pre-literate, you can't say Stone Age now, from pre-literacy um, into an independent nation state, which even has its own flag, unlike us. <laughs> and... and um, and he, I, I said, well, can, he offered to let me um, uh, hear some of his tapes. Uh, and that was a very wide-ranging uh, study that he was doing of our entire involvement. But what just riveted me were the accounts of Daniel Lay, who was then in his 70s, walking into the Chimbu Valley in 1933 on their first big expedition into, uh, through the Western Valleys and describing the, the phenomenon of first contact which was, you know, one... And in point of fact, this, this story that we stumbled onto was the last great confrontation that will ever again take place between one culture and the exploring representatives of another. And then Robin went up and stayed up there and did some, went up there and actually found out that there was 16-millimetre footage taken of it. Then she discovered uh, 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 an Australian who was doing a, a master's degree on first contact and he had discovered elderly Papua New Guinean Highlanders who remembered the first contact. And that was it. We were just completely hooked. Mm -hmm. And I remember boasting to people, we've got, we've got Cortez and the Aztecs and we've got Cortez talking about it and we've got the Aztecs talking about it and we've got film. And that just absolutely occupied us for the next 14 years. Mm. And that took you all the way to the Oscars with an Oscar nomination. So mm. you went back to America. And for someone who had been spending a very, very intense period in a very, very intense situation mm. with, with filming and making these films, can you describe a little bit the experience of going and, getting and, and t taking that ride? To, to the Oscars? Yeah. Well, I'm going to start off by telling you that this was a, this was for a nomination for the best documentary. And, and I remember arriving there um, and at the back of this huge traffic jam of white limousines and all the non-fiction people were in a bus. <laughs> now, it, it was a very nice bus. You know, seats were leather and they had a grog cabinet and the rest of it, but it was a bus. Because <laughs> this was Hollywood. Need I say more? Yeah. Uh, oh, look, it was very heady. Very heady. In fact, they, the New York Times had us as favourites, so we were walking around shaking like leaves and trying to work out our acceptance speeches. But then they put us in the middle of the row and that's when you know you're not going to get it. Because it takes you too long to walk out to the aisle. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, it was, it was great. But I, I, you know, that was, that was, uh, uh, that's good to get in, into the top floor and 
to get some money out of the suits, but th um, there are other festivals that I value much more than that. Well, obviously, Cannes um, honoured you. Is no, that not Cannes. No, 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 no. It wasn't. It was the Festival des Popoli in um, at, the, at the Pompidou Centre in um, Paris. in Paris. Mm. We won that three times that ah, Grand Prix. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And in terms of what taking your films and your talents overseas mm. to these festivals, widening your audience base. Is that just all for you mostly about being able to then fund the next project? Is it finding new projects? What, what, what is it that it stirs up in you, these, these travels with your films? I mean, this Aversion. obviously... Aversion. Uh, no. Um, <laughs> Aversion. No. Now, film festivals are... I mean, uh, yes, I'm with, I've been to a lot of them. Um, they are... With First Contact, we won a series of crucial festivals and that in a way put us on the map you know it meant that because that's where the television people go and they these sort of not not a lovely place like this but I'm, you know um, the ones in Europe and America and the, 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 the television executives go there and then they see this film and they um, they take notice I mean if you turn up as I as I did you know at channel 4 or the BBC you know these people are looking at 1500 or Films a month, you know, and they just got, they just swamped by the product. It's much worse now. Mm. It's really tough because, paradoxically, it's become more and more easy to make a a, a film, and certainly documentaries. You just basically need a digital camera, um, and you can just and you can get my daughter edit used to edit her fil school film projects on the bus <laughs> going into school. I mean, yeah. it, you know, this this has become from the most closed art form, mm. even though it's the most widely disseminated, it was the most closed because of the cost and the technology and 16mm and all the rest of it. Now it's the most universally acceptable, which is revolutionary. Mm. It's extraordinary what's happening. Mm. But the whole marketing side of it has become incredibly complex and dense and there's just a huge amount of product on the, on the market, which is basically all to the good, yeah. I think. Okay, that's nice to know. Um, David, if I could turn to you, um, I, I know that um, you have been widely nominated and awarded in this country in particular, but we were just touching outside on um, an invitation that you had to the American Directors Guild. Now, was, you decided not to go, is that because they don't even give writers any... Oh, no, this was the American <laughs> Writers Guild, no, I've never had American a, Writers I've, Guild, sorry, not Directors Guild, yeah, of course, I've Writers never Guild. had an uh, Oscar nomination. Um, but uh, I did get nominated for Best Screenplay for the adaptation of, um, of Peter Weir's film, The Year of Living Dangerously. Um, but they didn't insist I went, so <laughs> I, I assumed I wasn't going to get it. So, yeah. Were you uh, tempted to take your... Um, I, I guess what I was trying, I'm trying to ask is, when, when was it that you were tempted to take your films overseas, was it someone else that came to you and said, I really think that this one's going to go brilliantly overseas, or was it something that you had to push? How did that, how did that take off for you? No, I got an introduction to the States through the film shot in Australia that did well, either commercially or critically, um, in the States. Um, those three in particular were Gallipoli, which uh, got wide screening in the States, um, and good critical acclaim, Year of Living Dangerously, and strangely, Bruce Beresford's version of my play, Don's Party. Don's Party um, got the got far better crits in New York than it did in um, in Sydney, uh, which is uh, which is uh, yeah, they they loved it over there. So that was my entry card, 
um, and then I started getting on the big 747 across to LA. But by and large, that was a dispiriting experience because I'm I am Australian. It takes you a lifetime to learn the social intricacies of your own culture. When you're writing about another culture, you're virtually writing in a second language. It's like mm. speaking French, uh, and you don't do it as well as your um, your native language unless you're writing genre movies, which don't require a close observation of um, the social setting and the values and mores. A genre film is a genre film. It's an international. It's a horror film or something like that. Uh, but it's very hard. Um, there are big differences between us and the Americans, and I, that was pointed out to me during my psych psychology studies. We had to do a, a major project, and we just happened to have the um, personality tests of incoming Swinburne students. They used to test them for personality in, in, in those days, and they did the Cattell personality inventory. And I, we did a comparison between the American norms and the Australian norms, and the, um, there was a, a scale which could be loosely translated as the cynicism scale, and we thought we made a, the, the computer had spewed out an error because uh, the Australian cynicism levels were one and a half standard deviations above uh, the American levels, and uh, we honestly thought we must have made a mistake because that's like the difference between someone who's five foot eight and someone who's six foot two. Our, our culture is enormously more cynical than the Americans, would you believe? Um, mm -hmm. uh, and things like that are reflected in the writing. Uh, Britain's even more cynical than we are. If you've seen <laughs> the, the blackness of British humour, and ours is pretty black, uh, the Americans are much more earnest, uh, uh, aspiring uh, culture. And when I started trying to write American films, they always wanted an arc of uh, development where the central character starts out not so good and then has learning experience after learning experience and finally ends up a wonderful human being and everyone goes out happy. Uh, whereas Australia, the typical story is someone keeps m making the same mistakes over and over and over again and never gets any better. So it was a bit, it was a bit hard for me to adjust to this new story structure. So how do you explain Don's party being embraced that way? Well, I, I think a lot of Americans, um, uh, I hope the more intelligent ones, are sick of the earnestness of American culture and um, actually like to see some anarchistically bad behavior uh, of the sort they would never see in America. I mean, for anyone to be as impolite as the characters in Don's party would be social death in America. You, you, <laughs> no matter whether you hate someone in America, you, 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 you don't say it. Mm -hmm. You don't show it. You, you, you bury it deep in the subtext. What, I, what I'm fascinated about is you said that taking those jumbos back and forth, a lot of people, perhaps in this room or a lot of people at this festival, their dream is to take that jumbo back and forth to LA and perhaps get a, a, a chance to, to write a film or direct a film or act in a film over there. And it's seen as the pinnacle. And I guess what I'm really interested to, to hear is that, you know, you, you really, I guess, are, are saying that the, the best stories to tell are your yeah. own. Look, if, if you're a writer, um, don't do it. If you're a, a, a composing music, if you're doing documentaries, if you're a director, if you're an actor, but truly, unless you're writing in a genre mode, which is, and there's nothing absolutely wrong with uh, writing genre movies, um, it, well, Flaubert said all great art is provincial, and what he meant there was you've got to get the surface details right 
uh, which he did of French society in that particular place and time. I mean, he was also a brilliant writer, so the surface details were all perfect, uh, and the human story was strong underneath, and so it transcends. But unless you get the particulars right, there's always something phony about the, uh, the writing, and so I think that writers are bound to their own culture in a way that uh, actors and directors and musicians are not. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think you, you, you see a parade of hugely successful um, uh, Australian actors, directors, um, but it's harder to find, um, except in that genre area, um, a history of, of, of Australian writers um, uh, succeeding in Hollywood. Mm. Interesting. Um, Lisa, I, just, I, I saw a quote of yours that music is a place to take refuge and it's a sanctuary from mediocrity. Could you talk a little bit about that? I, I was, that really resonated with me. It's a... Yes, and I'd like it to come from the conversation that we've just been listening mm. to in continuity with that. Um, I think that having a, an artistic soul and growing up in a country like Australia is a huge advantage from the point of view there is a lot of adversity there are very few things to connect with that exist outside of the abstract because there's so much uh, diversity of culture within Australia. So not speaking from the point of view of writing as you have, but from the musical point of view where music is a response to a reality. And um, when it's undefinable, like growing up here, because I always felt indigenous to Australia, I never understood how I wasn't indigenous to Australia and felt that my language, um, my artistic language had to be one that came from my heart and not from my mind. And um, because there was so much emotional property within the culture, within being Australian, uh, between the different families and great family people, being diverse groups of great family behaviour and cultural um, influence. And I, when you communicate with music or you are a receiver of musical information, it is a desire to communicate those things that can't be spoken with words. So as we go from geography, the, the reverence of uh, being an observer, and then we go to the reverence of having a deep uh, connection with the tissue of who we are socially. And then we go to the emotional pool, which is that of music, which is the abstract collective that speaks directly to the human heart without practicality. And with um, growing up in Australia, I think I wouldn't have developed my own independence as a composer uh, within my my own consciousness if I'd have lived somewhere else. I think the cultural onslaught, if you like, um, of what was it, what is expected of you, perhaps overseas, uh, maybe in England, America, as you mentioned. Even Ireland is very strong with tradition, with traditional music, and that you were able to escape those values, having lived in Australia, because it was such a menagerie or a mosaic of colours. Um, in in that sense. And so it allowed me to develop my own uh, voice, you know, from from that perspective. And and I think 
it is difficult in Australia to start out. Um, all you have is the love for what you do. But that is the most important property that you possess, is to be ruthless when it comes to protecting that that is in, within your artistic soul. Because it is there for others to profit from. It's something to be shared. It won't destroy you. At times you will feel that it's an electrical current that, you know, is so overwhelming that you find it difficult to connect with other things. But if you find a way of having a private, a very private and intimate relationship with that work and value it, then it will be shared in a very positive way and you will find an outlet. But it it is, has its advantages being here. It has its disadvantages from the material side of things because, you know, fortunately we have unemployment benefit, which I myself was on for nine years mm -hmm. um, in order to develop my creative skills. Without the unemployment benefit, I would have been robbed of the essential time that I needed. But I felt quite comfortable, even though I was called doll bludger, um, that with taking that money from the government, for one thing, I've returned it now, and, but uh, more importantly, it, I felt that I deserved to develop my intimate and private skills that I felt I'd been given. So, you know, fortunately, we do live in a culture that we can, if we're willing to live humbly, develop our skills. So in a way, Australian government was your patron. Absolutely. Mm. And um, I, I'd love to, to turn to some of the directors that you've worked with. I mean, it's an incredibly impressive list, but I'm fascinated because it's such a collaboration to make any film, any artistic endeavor mm. indeed. But particularly, I'm fascinated by the relationship between the director and the composer, because I can imagine that it would be very different with each director, how they portray to you mm. what they want to get across in the music. Yes. And do you approach each project very differently? I mean, I'm particularly interested in perhaps Ridley Scott, who's one of the you know, directors that you've obviously worked with a couple of times and, mm. and had some real success with. Would you mind sharing a little bit about that collaboration? I think the important information that I can give you through my own experience is to listen with your soul and ears. And when you're in a company of a new person, regardless of who they are, whether we see them as someone that, you know, maybe they're going to keep a roof over our house for the next 12 months if we have a certain amount of success with this situation, ultimately we have to be able to respond to those things that they can't describe. I think that's probably the, the biggest challenge in collaborating with someone else is responding to a vision that uh, they are having difficulty conveying in musical terms. And music is such a, an elusive property because it, especially when it's married to picture, that it can open up um, a magic of the line, if you like, that uh, isn't necessarily, it's quite complex, the relationship, and thankfully accidental or something that we don't have complete control over. So with our directors, for one thing we must understand that they're extremely scared, they're very frightened, they're under enormous pressure, 
they've arrived in this situation where finally they're given an opportunity to be able to speak something that they've wanted to communicate all of their lives and they want to get it right. We must spend a lot of time listening, listening to what they talk about, what their lives are about, and talk about the characters in their films, talk about uh, the subtext, the stories they don't want to tell with their film, the things they do want to touch on or the, the things that they want to avoid. And through that collective interest of spending time listening and communicating with our director, we come to a, I, I, I suppose it's almost like you become like a, a medium for them in a way because you sensitize yourself to such a degree that it starts to be communicated through your art form. But it really is a, a humbling situation. And, you know, if there is anyone in the room that's chosen to do music, I understand that it's an extremely difficult path, you know, and it's, it is humiliating. And there are many times that you'll shed tears um, and wonder why God had led you to such a terrible place, you know. <laughs> but really, it's... Um, uh, we, t we, we, for some unknown reason, I don't know why, we can't... It's an affliction in a way, because we can't avoid it. We, we were born to do it, and it's impossible for us to stop, you know. And I, I have no understanding of why some of us have been given this task, but I want to encourage you and know that... <laughs> <laughs> but know that um, it doesn't matter who, whether someone is, not to be disrespectful to your question, but no, no. it doesn't matter whether someone is Ridley Scott or whether they've had success or each person that is dedicated to this work deserves the same respect. Of course. You know, ultimately. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Lisa. Um, I, I'd love, Bob, you were agreeing and nodding to a lot of what Lisa was saying and obviously your most recent film is all about musical performance and its music is inherent to the story and a big part of it. Mm. Would you like to share with us, did it feel like an affliction at times? What was an affliction was a, a late middle-aged man making a film surrounded by 1,200 adolescent schoolgirls. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was mostly terrified. Like, you know, I was certainly <laughs> classified as a terrified director because they're fearsome. Um, but fortunately they sort of treated me as a sort of an mention or whatever that word is. That I sort of didn't exist in a way, I don't think. Um, but no, I, I, I'm, I jest. Um, it was an absolutely... Well, we, we, we were on location for 18 months um, um, at, at the school. Um, basically, just to briefly summarise, um, every two years the school puts on a concert of classical music at the Sydney Opera House. And um, it's, um, the standard is extraordinarily high. And I, I suppose what initially attracted me to it was to try to work out just how that happens, how you can get performances like this out of school kids. Um, and I thought that there might be a few other sparks that would sort of come off at the same, that gives, gives an insight into, into, into kids, into education perhaps, and all that sort of stuff. But essentially it was just studying a group of kids uh, preparing for a concert. And I found it the most transcendently wonderful experience, really, uh, because it was just so refreshing. Uh, and it touches on what, what you're both really saying. I mean, I, you know, um, 
the thing that has given me the, the most deepest satisfaction, and I think all my 35 years of doing this, is that this film is, is now in 35 and up to, going up to 40 cinemas in Australia. And frankly, for people in Australia to pay money to come and see something that I've had a hand in is worth a million Oscars, to be really honest with you. Um, a million. And uh, it's just, uh, you know, we did spend 10 years in New Guinea making films. That's true, and it was wonderful, and they certainly, you know, uh, they, were, they were fascinating experiences. But essentially, I was very happy, in a way, to get back to my own culture, because this is something that, you know, I feel I know a bit about, because I'm part of it. Uh, in New Guinea, I always, much as I loved the place and the people, I always felt an outsider. And I think to make films um, that, 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 that purport to say something, it really is important to work within your own culture. Um, and this was, this was very much within my own culture. Both my kids went to the school. In fact, my younger daughter was still there when we started shooting and she wasn't very happy at all. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, we're going to turn to questions from the audience in just a minute. Thank you so much to your wonderful thoughts and stories that you're sharing with us today. Please have your questions ready, but I would just like to ask both Bob and David before we leave. Lisa was so um, eloquent and fascinating then talking to aspiring potential composers. I would just love... What advice would you both have to potential directors and screenwriters? Uh, advice to don't do it. Uh, <laughs> be a director uh, or a producer. No, um, or a musician. No, look, um, uh, it's a bit of a heartache uh, business being a screenwriter because you're part of a committee. What I love about the stage is you write it and they do it, uh, <laughs> which is wonderful. Um, uh, I've been through the agonies of every time a new producer is taken on board or a new financier or a new distributor, they all come and give you a hefty set of script notes to uh, you know, change the, the course of the script totally around. It's all wrong. Um, I went th I've been through eight years of a film that finally looks like it's not going to get made. Oh. Uh, and every time a new creative or financial or person came on board, um, uh, you get the um, the directions, the script notes coming. All, all your last efforts are wrong. This is what you've got to do now. And it reminds me of the old Hollywood joke of the writer um, being hired by the producer to write this script. And he went away and did the first draft. The producer said, crap, do this, this is a second. By the tenth draft, he came in. The writer said, if you know so much about it, why don't you write the damn thing yourself? <laughs> and he said, I would if I had the time. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Bob, do you have any wise, kind, <laughs> insightful words for this? I was, I was, yeah, I think, um, looking back, I think the most essential if to, to do this work and to realise whatever potential you've got, the most important single element is creative independence. Mm. And in the film industry, that's really hard to achieve, particularly in, in, um, in feature films. But in documentary, it's also very hard to achieve because they cost money to make, and that means someone's giving you that money and that person has got some whip hands. Mm -hmm. And the trick in this business is to basically say to them, don't call me, I'll call you when I'm finished. <laughs> because I work on quite a few films, um, that, and some of them are, get into trouble. And I've noticed over the years that probably 
of all, this is just in my area of expertise, which is only documentary, 90% of them are finished before they should be. And they're finished with compromises, which the filmmakers are not happy about. And it's usually because of money, or it's the suits, basically telling them, that's it, you've got to stop, you know, or the co-production partners, or the this, or the bankers, or the screen, you know, the government um, funding agencies and all the rest of it. They are, there's this constant pressure to compromise. And I think the most essential thing in to create anything of any value is to never, ever, ever compromise. Don't give in an inch. That's, that's, that's what I think. Mm -hmm. You've got to have the power to be able to do that, though. When yeah. you're a screenwriter, you just simply haven't got the power. Yeah. They'll just fire you and put someone else on if, if they don't... Um, um, if, they don't uh, if you speak back to them and you don't take their notes seriously. Um, the trouble with being a writer or a screenwriter is that everybody thinks they can write. Not everyone thinks they can act or direct, but everyone thinks they can write and everyone thinks they've got better story instincts than you, the writer, which is very frustrating. Before we throw it to the audience, is there anything that you'd like to ask each other? I know that's probably not... I, I could plant that seed. You can ask if something comes to mind. I do want to encourage you both to ask each other questions as well. Is there anything that you'd like to... I have a question, Andrew. Bob, um, I wonder if I could take you back to your first contact experience, your personal first contact in New Guinea. Can you tell us your thoughts and feelings when you first got there uh, and how you approached it when you were a novice to it? Can you remember it before the experience that you had? Um, I'll tell you, um, I'll dodge that question a bit by telling you what happened to Robin, because I was making films here with Dick Smith to earn money to, um, to, to do the research and Robin went up to New Guinea and she was a very organised person. And um, she went up and she'd never been there before and she didn't get a, enough advice. So she went up to Port Moresby, which is one of the worst towns in the world, uh, and, um, and got, a, got a room at the, um, I think it was called the Papua Hotel, which she didn't know was the biggest red light centre in, in Port Moresby. <laughs> and then began setting up a series of interviews over the next three or four days with various politicians and everyone, and then sat there, <laughs> sat there with her notebook waiting and not a single one turned up. And she rang, up, rang me up and she said, I think, I think I'm going to have to take another approach. Um, look, I, 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 I don't know that I can sort of narrow it down to what, what I did come away with was, um, was a, a most extraordinary before things went bad, and they did go bad for us in the last film we made there, Black Harvest, there were 300 people killed in the tribal war, including a lot of our friends. And, but what I came away, living up there, which we did for periods of 18 months, two years, with the people out in the villages and so on, was um, a huge regard for, it, I suppose you could call it a tribal way of life, and I'm trying not to be sort of nostalgic, or nostalgic but... What, what we both, and when we came back to Australia, we were deeply shocked at the difference in the way people are valued. Because what we found up there was that everyone, no matter what station of life they occupied, were valued, was valued as, as individuals. Whereas when we came back, you got that sense that everyone here is valued according to whether they're a producer or a consumer and how much of that they do. And the other thing is that you find when you come back living, after living in a tribal society, is how capitalism, you know, which I have profited from, of course, and uh, atomizes people. That it seeks all the time to separate people out into, because, you know, in that way, in a sense, they're more manipulable, if you like. 
Whereas in New Guinea, you find that quite the opposite happens, that there is this real sense of a social glue where, 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 where it's, I think they do call it social capital. Tribal societies have it in heaps, and I think we're leeching it away, you know, as, as, as we progress. Mm. We have a question here in the front, did um, David, with um, your discussion about writing characters who are speaking in different accents who are from different countries, um, when your play Soulmates was on, I can't remember the actor's name, but I know he was Jackie Weaver's partner and he was South African. Did you write that character as a South African character or did that come in the casting? No, I, I wrote that as a South African character because we, we, I'd been working on a film project with four um, wonderful South African brothers called the Watson Brothers and I really got to know them very well. I got to know their accents very well and their, their, their speech cadences. Uh, so I felt, um, I felt I could legitimately have a stab at a South African and, um, and when we cast a South African actor in it, who was a terrific actor and very uh, convincing, um, uh, the South Africans, of which there are many in Sydney, seem to find it acceptable. You mentioned how new technology has sort of lev leveled the playing field in terms of enabling new cinema photographers and young kids to start out. But I was just reading a statistic yesterday that every hour, 48 hours of video footage is uploaded to YouTube. <laughs> now, a lot of that is crap that's almost like in the music industry, we've got pop idol, X Factor, it's just destroyed what is the essence really of creativity in music. Is that perhaps allowing all this stuff without any editorial aspect or guidance a good thing? Film. Who are you directing the question to? Anyone? Who would like to answer um, that one? Yes, is my short, um, unconsidered answer. Um, I think the more the more people are doing things, the better. And I mean, most of it, I agree. Would never, you know, you don't see, and there's a mass of material. But it's like books. I mean, there's, and it's like anything. I mean, I think volume. Uh, is, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with volume. Uh, that would be my first response. Mm. It's also at the source that this information that's uncensored that comes to YouTube is, it's the source of um, inspiration, you know, but it's a, and it's also another genre. I did a film recently uh, called Tears of Gaza, which was shot in the Gaza Strip with mobile phones, Gee. you know, and it's become extremely difficult to keep things secret, you know. Mm. And um, without the phone, then that information would never have been allowed to leave Gaza. I hate to keep bringing you up in conversation, Rory, but uh, Rory and Yannicka's wedding video scored 25,000 hits. Uh, <laughs> but I don't think it's going to make your career, son, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Question at the back. This one's for Lisa. Um, as a director, I mean, I don't have a lot of musical um, knowledge. What's the best way to get from what's in my head to your head? Hmm. Every director says that they don't know anything about music until you get them into the studio. And you must remember that music is always begins with one note, you know. And if you can get a sensitivity or a sentiment of what it is, or not sentiment, but um, sensibility, of what it is that you want to say, and you use absolutes, 
Like you may say, you know, I, I want people to feel the tenderness between this in this moment, you know, to understand. And then you search for colors. You try to find colors that are tender. And it's, there isn't, I've never worked with a director that, that, that can't say, this is it, or yes, I'm starting to feel this, or this is wrong. You know, so it's a process of elimination. You know, so don't feel afraid. The other thing I would suggest you do, and I know this is extremely, it seems quite vulgar, but um, is to keep together a collection of works musically that motivate you so that when it does come to you making your own film that you can reach for those to help to learn what is innately uh, not always visible within the picture that you create. Because sometimes by placing a singular item of music against picture, it will bring forward um, an ability, to, something visceral that will help to tell your story in a way that you didn't plan. So always be you know, prepared to uh, ha may have experimentation and encourage your composer to um, experiment and learn the movie with you. And I, think, I don't think you'll have any problem because if you've made a film, then obviously you have artistic vision and you're a very sensitive soul. So there's no reason why you can't speak in the language of music. Another question. Bob, this is, this is a question that's asked for some sadness. Uh, I saw uh, Inside Job and I thought it was in incredibly powerful on the economic disasters. And I've, I felt its message had, it was so effective. Uh, Newspapers, magazines, and others hadn't covered it in anything like that depth, that effectiveness, that, uh, the, and, and carried the message, the strength. And I suppose we've seen Al Gore and others. Uh, documentaries have an enormous impact, don't they? That's very interesting. Um, yeah, I, I, I went to see that film, and I, I have to confess, I went with a slight aversion to sort of lecture documentaries um, that push sort of ideological or didactic positions. But um, I was proved so completely wrong by, by that film, which I agree with you, was just an extraordinary, and it was the quality of the filmmaking. It was an extraordinary exposition that left you breathless with anger uh, because all these people are still out there just, you know. Can you tell they, us a little bit about oh, it? Oh, well, it's, it's, it's about, it's the, it's the forensic analysis of what, what, how the, the financial crisis happened. And, and, and who did it? Who were, who were the central people responsible? And what happened to them, which was precisely nothing? In fact, they profited out of it. They're all sitting with hundreds of millions of dollars. All of them. All of them. And most of them are in positions of power still. So, yes, I mean, th there is now this the developing this, um, this, well, not develop, but this genre of, of, uh, of films in the hands of exceedingly good filmmakers. That was a massive intellectual job. Because John Power once said to me, he was a great mentor of mine, I said to him, you know, because he used to, when I was at the ABC, he was a very, very good documentary maker, this is 30 years ago. I said, how do you, um, how do, you do it, John? You know, because I, I was only just starting out. He says, well, I'll tell you what I do. I amass a massive amount of information. I amass hundreds of books worth of information. And then to make a film, I put it all through a pinhole. And I've never forgotten that, mm. you know, that notion of what a film can do. But what you need to know before you can get the fullest potential out of the, the, the film. 
I think that's a wonderful note to finish on. Um, thank you so much for coming today. And thank you so much to my wonderful panellists, Lisa, David and Bob. <laughs> thank you so much for being here and thank you so much. Thank you.